You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a podcast with us, Cain and Abel, two magicians with the exact same voice coming to you today from Walthamstow. We're back in the UK for a week, which feels nice. Uh, we are still very much into the jet setting back and forward to Greece and Cyprus and places like that as part of our summer season of gigs. And that's been going pretty nice, getting a little bit of colour on us. Very quickly before we get into what is a really fascinating and interesting interview today, do us a favour, give us a little like, give us a share on social media, subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. Now the reason we mentioned that we've been jet setting back and forth to Greece and, and Cyprus and places like that is because sometimes we are in the air on a Monday and we're not able to get the podcast to you. We always endeavour to get it to you on a Monday but I think last week it came out on a Wednesday so I don't want you to have to be checking in to see if there's been a new podcast launched. Sometimes it'll come on a Monday night, sometimes it'll be there ready for you on a Monday afternoon or a Monday morning. So do yourselves a favor, subscribe to the podcast and then bam, it's going to drop straight into your, your iTunes list or into your little Podbean app or your Acast app. However you are listening to this podcast, you will get it straight in there. You don't have to worry about searching around for it. If you do search around for us on social media, obviously we will always let you know on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram that we have released a new podcast. And if you see that post, give it a share so that other people can see it and give it a nice big like for us as well. It all helps with the ratings. It makes more people people able to see the post and the more people that see the posts the more people that listen to the podcast the better people we can interview so to speak we were really lucky to get a lot of really great interviews uh, during the Edinburgh Fringe and we've got one of those coming up for you now on Talking Tricks it's Chris Cross the mid-90s rap duo famous for the song Jump you know you should know better jump jump you know you should know better jump jump no it's not that it's not that Chris Cross this is Talking Tricks, a podcast about comedy, magic, circus, variety. So I suppose that crisscross rap duo, they could be a variety act. But no, this is crisscross, the famous contortionist, magician, comedian. And he was up at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe getting ready for a tour in the North East. So we sat down with him during the festival. And this is that interview for you now with the enigmatic crisscross. number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Joining us now on Talking Tricks is Chris Cross. Chris, how you doing? I'm all right. I'm proper cushy. So we're here at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. I want to kind of dive into your career, but I also want to talk about a lot of the magical artefacts that you've come into ownership of. But first of all, how's the Fringe been for you this year? The Fringe is lovely. It's my 14th year here at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and I've got a 10-night run in just a small venue this year but it's suiting me really nicely because I've been able to go and try out some new tricks in preparation for this big tour that I'm doing in October and November. It's weird because I'm used to doing the same stuff and I always do the same thing like a straight jacket escape and all that sort of stuff like my, my class A material my safety stuff and I, 
always do the same thing and I, I never divulge into, into performing new tricks and bravely venture and getting a new prop out of the case and performing it I just go to the same go-to material but what I've done this year is I've put brand new tricks in my case taking the case to the gig without my straight jacket in without my usual tricks in so I can't just pick up a go-to trick I've got no choice but to pick up one of these brand new tricks and perform it that's the only way I've been able to do it because there's so many times I've put a new trick in the case along with all my other ones and it's just stayed in the case because I've just done the tried and tested stuff it's been a weird one it's been a really weird fringe but I've really enjoyed it and I've had some really good feedback from the audiences and stuff and now I'm getting comfortable with some new tricks so that's good I'm adding to my repertoire finally talk us through this this tour then that you're going on it's kind of a the, the best of the north isn't it a little t- tour of the north well i'm doing so the tour is called crisscross the great magician of the north an honest title but a modest title i guess <laughs> uh, modest but honest so um i'm doing the new castle town theater and opera house which is like 1100 seats now that's the opening night and that's the big one because i've got about a dozen variety performers on the bill so previous uh, people that have performed on that show have been like I've had Mark Raffles on the bill I've had uh, the the great juggler Steve Rawlings on the bill I've had all sorts of really good acts on Um, there's there's usually between 12 and 15 performers 12 and 15 different acts it's it's a real sort of um, throwback to the musicals and variety programmes of the 1920s because it's mad. There's not there's not many variety shows now that put on like a dozen acts on the bill. It's just loads of um, you know acrobats, knife jugglers, sword swallowers, contortionists, escapologists, magicians, singers, dancers, prancers, all sorts of fantastic, wonderful acts on one bill, which is great. And you don't get that anymore because it costs too much money and the promoter doesn't make as much money. And but I just do it because I love it. And as long as I break even, I'm, I'm quite happy. So it's nice to put on one big show of the year. So that's the first show of my tour. And then I'm doing the Richmond Georgian Theatre Royals. So it's gone from the Newcastle Town Theatre. It's like 1,100 seats. And the Richmond one's tiny. It's like 180 or something. Um, North Shields, Darlington Majestic, Wakefield Theatre Royal. That's a lovely Matcham Theatre. It's about 600 seats in that one. The Stanley Civic Hall, Hexham Queen's Hall, where I went to see Paul Daniels. And I went to see Geoffrey Durham there on his Little Miracles tour as well years ago. Washington Arts Centre, uh, the Cockermouth Kirkgate Arts Centre, and finishing up in the Stephen Joseph Theatre and Scarborough. So it's basically like 10 nights around the north of England doing a magic show and I've got a support actor each one which will be um, a comedian so uh, for example in Wakefield I've got Jimmy Cricket my special guest support act Bobby Pattinson a Geordie comedian and a few few of the ones near Newcastle and there's lots of different support acts so it's it's good it's it's a proper proper comedy and magic show old school style delving in a little bit deeper on that then what can people expect from your live show this year so I'll be doing some tricks that I've done for years and then I'll be doing some brand new tricks which I'm working in here at the Edinburgh Festival. So if you come and see me, you'll see some of the same old stuff and hopefully enjoy it. And um, and, and some new tricks, which will hopefully go right. <laughs> you mentioned Paul Daniels and Geoffrey Durham there. Were those kind of two influences in your early career or kind of who was it that got you into magic? Well, I learned my first trick when I was 10 years old on the playground at school when my friend showed me the coin vanisher from Magic Box, ex- magic box exclusive trick, the coin vanisher, and it was 
um, a crocodile clip with a bit of rubber around it on the end of a bit of elastic with a safety pin, you know, the one that shoots up your sleeve. So my mate showed us that trick when I was 10 on the playground. I went and bought it for £2.49 from the Magic Box shop in Newcastle. And after that, I just carried on. I think I bought a few more when I was there. I think I bought the, the Light Up Thumbs. They weren't delights, they were the cheap ones called Light Up Thumbs. And I bought a little plastic and metal finger chopper. And I think I bought the trick with a cigarette that you put in the tube and it changes into a little one. And those were the first tricks that I bought from Magic Box. That's how I got into it. And then there was no looking back after that, really. The time I realised that I wanted to do magic as a job and I wanted to be a magician was when I was about 12. So I had an interest in magic and I enjoyed it from my friend at school showing me the trick. But when I was 12, I went to see Paul Daniels at the Whitley Bay Playhouse and I watched this guy on stage just owning the place and getting everyone laughing and clapping and cheering. And I thought, at 12 years old, this is a cool way to make a living. This is a good job. I want to do this. I want to be that guy up there. So I did. <laughs> and when I was 13, I was working semi-professionally around all the nightclubs and bars in Newcastle, doing close-up magic for tips and things. And then when I was 16, I left school to do it as a full-time career, full-time job. Has that always been your full-time job? You've kind of never looked back since 16? I've never had another job. That's all I've ever done. I've, I've only been a magician. That's it. And what, I, what were kind of some of the early, early challenges then, I guess? A lot of people listening to this might be, you know, starting out their full-time career as a magician. What, what were some of the early challenges for you? The biggest problem I had, I've had two big problems in my career. The first one was early days. The second one was when I was doing really well. Uh, actually, three problems. So the first problem uh, that I had to overcome was I'd been working the nightclubs when I was 13 to 16, and I was making like, you know, a few hundred quid every weekend in tips. I always had the best trainers and pencil case at school. I won like a, a, an award in the Northern Magic Circle or something for like, you know, the stage competition or whatever. And um, the newspapers did an article on it and they published my age. And, and one of the club promoters saw that I was only like 15 or whatever at the time. And the word spread that I was too young to work the bars. So that was a bit of a problem. In fact, I th that, was, that was just as I'd left school, so that would have been 16. So I left school to do magic full time at 16, relying on this few hundred quid every month, and uh, every week, sorry. I kind of shot myself in the foot, drumming up some press interest when they published my age. And that meant that I couldn't work any, any bars anymore. So I had to start ringing the restaurants and hotels and saying, hello, I'm Criss Cross, I'm a magician. Do you want a resident magician? Can I come and entertain your lovely clients during their Sunday lunch in your establishment? And they were just saying like, no, sorry, we already use a guy. We've already got a guy. We use such and such, we use such and such. And the same two or three names were coming up um, of magicians that they use in Newcastle. There wasn't any space for me. So I started doing street shows since I couldn't get any gigs and I couldn't work the bars anymore. But in the bars, I had learned how to get money out of people. So I put a street show together, a street magic show. And on the Thumbland Street in Newcastle, I'd be out there every day doing my street magic show. I didn't get that much money from it, but I made some money. Um, and it was a, another avenue that I'd never before explored on the street. So that was good. Kind of assessed why am I not making much money by doing this little magic show. And the answer was because it wasn't visual enough. I wasn't standing on a big box with a microphone. I was just stand on the pavement with a little table and a pack of cards. So I decided I'd always been able to do some weird stuff with my body, the contortion tricks, dislocations and stuff. So 
I did the magic tricks and then I threw in a couple of those dislocation tricks and then I put in the straight jacket escape at the end as a finale and that worked really well and pretty much overnight I'd become a contortionist and escapologist. just made sense to do an escape at the end because I could do all this weird contortion stuff. So I went from being a magician pretty much overnight to being a contortionist and escapologist and took all the magic out of the street act. And then I performed that all over the country and different countries and stuff. And then I built up um, my reputation. And every year I was getting bigger and better gigs and making more and more money and, and doing well. Um, but then I guess it, it sort of all reached its peak in 2010 when I was 21. Uh, you know, that year in, in January I went to Christchurch in New Zealand and performed at the World Buskers Festival by invitation and it was good money and whilst all the, the suckers in England were in the rain and wet and damp and cold and not making any money and, you know, it's a really shit time of the year for everybody in January in England, especially magicians because it's not like there's a special event on that you can go and perform at. Everyone's counting the money from Christmas parties in December anyway. But in January, I got invited to go out to Christchurch in New Zealand to perform at the World Buskers Festival, which is one of the biggest busking festivals in the world. So that was great. And then in February, I was in Paris working the, the burlesque bars and clubs at Lee China and places like that during the Valentine season. Um, so that was my February mapped out. March, I was in Bahrain entertaining at the Formula One and entertaining like the Prince of Bahrain and lots of celebrities and stuff. And that was a cushy gig. April, I was in Greece. Um, in Athens actually performing on Greece Has Got Talent which was a very random booking I might add uh, then in May I was in New York and in LA and, and just performing at all these absolutely wild cabaret bars and stuff, places like the Slipper Room in New York City and the, the, the Three of Clubs um, just off Sunset in LA and it was, it was great and then June and July, getting back to England to do all the music festivals like Glastonbury, the largest um, music festival in the world, and all that stuff. And the year just went on and on. And 2010 was a really good year. I turned 21, I got all these gigs. And every year I'd been getting bigger and better, and money was getting better, and the gigs were getting better, and the clients were getting better, and everything was just getting better. And then in 2011, when I checked my diary, didn't really have many gigs and I was like ah what's gone wrong here and it took me about 18 months to realize that what had happened was in 2010 when I finally reached where I wanted to be and got all these good gigs and I was getting jetted all over the world and doing all these interviews and going on tv and all that I kind of realized that I'd forgot that I was a magician and I thought that I was some kind of rock star, which I'm not, and I know that. But if you haven't got a manager and you, you have a successful career and it all just kind of jumps on you at once, um, you haven't got somebody to, to mentor you or, or guide you, then it's easy to, to mess it all up. And that's, that's what I think I did. Um, so in 2011, I didn't have that many gigs. 2012, I started to rebrand myself, get a new image, um, look at where my act was going and where I was going as, as a character and as a person as well because I'd changed a lot. 
um, after 2010, you know, with, with all this whole rock and roll thing. Um, and I just got myself, I, I just, it's not who I wanted to be. And I, I found out who I wanted to be, uh, where I wanted to go, what direction I wanted to go in, what I wanted to achieve, what I wanted in life, whether I wanted to be a nice guy in real life or a nasty guy in real life. And I wanted to be a nice guy, not a nasty guy, which I'd kind of turned into. And I just had to rejiggle my life. Not just my show and my act and my tricks, but everything, my lifestyle. Now I change it all, and it really helped. I, I met a really lovely girl, and um, we've been going out for like seven and a half years now. So she helped me get my shit together, and I, I, I knew what I had to do, and and yeah. So I rebranded myself completely, and since I've performed, you know, at a Christmas party with Prince Harry and Mike Tyson's Sportsman's Dinner and Alice Cooper's press conference and Boy George's fiftieth and all these really cool gigs. So I'm doing better than ever now, but in a totally different direction to where I might have gone. I remember seeing kind of a video of you with Mike Tyson. Did you do the, the stomach punch with him? Am I remembering that correctly? Or what did you do at that, at that ball with Tyson? No, Blaine did a um, thing with Kimbo Slice where he got punched in the stomach. The Tyson one, I challenged him to a contest of strength. Basically... Um, it was a straight jacket escape, that was it. Yeah. But I'm quite good at drumming up the, the, the press and, and all that and making a mountain out of a molehill and, you know, the true Houdini-esque fashion. Um, and and I'd, I'd, I challenged him. He had 90 seconds to tie me up using all of his strength, the strength of a two-time undisputed former heavyweight champion of the world up against the strength of an escapologist from Newcastle. So he had 90 seconds to tie me up and then I had 90 seconds to get out. Obviously, I got out in the 89th second, and I beat Mike Tyson in a contest of strength. So it was just a big press thing. Um, and the, the, the ESPN, Sports Nation, they actually picked that up, and, it, and the, the footage was used on ESPN, which is pretty cool, with Tyson commenting on it and commenting on the event, saying, that guy was crazy, I was in danger of my life, and all this. So that's a good quote for the Flyers whilst we're talking about making the most of those kind of moments we were talking before this about how you went to David Blaine as a punter ended up on stage just tell us very quickly that story so I was watching I'm a big fan of David Blaine I mean uh, his TV specials were on TV at the same time when I was 10 when the the, the lad in the playground showed me the trick Uh, the the guy in the playground who showed me the trick was inspired by David Blaine and we both kind of Loved watching him and stuff, so we got we got into David Blaine together and watched all his specials and things. So I've always been a fan, and I've loved his big stunts, and I'm a fan of Houdini, and I love all this mad stuff that he's doing. And um, we were saying before when we saw David Blaine live, that's probably the closest that you'll ever get to see, uh, you know, of of a Houdini esque performance. You know, I mean, he's he's the the great of our generation. You know, you got Copperfield, you got Blaine. I think they're the two biggest. Um, so in short I, I, I jumped at the chance to go and see David Blaine I wanted to see him on the first night of his tour I wanted to see him at the Edinburgh Playhouse because it's a proper old theatre I believe Houdini played there a few times and lots of old greats I didn't want to go and see him in one of these arenas in like Leeds or Manchester or London because the atmosphere wouldn't have been as good the magic wouldn't have been as good and it just I wanted to go and, and see Blaine in a really old theatre in Edinburgh. And Houdini was affiliated with Edinburgh a lot, you know. I mean, the history between Houdini and Edinburgh, everyone will know about, I'm sure. Um, 
and, and definitely Blaine knows all about the history between Houdini and Edinburgh so I thought you know for Blaine this will be a really special gig performing at Edinburgh Playhouse in Scotland um, so I wanted to see him there I went along and I was watching all these people getting up on stage and getting really cool souvenirs like the ice pick that he pushed through his arm and the big puzzle with the, the, the jigsaw puzzle with the bit that missing and stuff so I, I was sitting there and I'd had a few beers to be honest and I was there with Claire my girlfriend and on stage assistant and I was sitting next to her and I was going oh I wish I'd had that ice pick I wish I'd had that and you know like I say I'd had a couple of beers but I was dressed very decadently that evening I thought I'd wear you know like a nice black and gold velvet suit as you do um, so I looked rather magical and I, I just I had a, a big fur scarf on and things you know a real like 1920s theatrical night out I was dead looking forward to it and Claire had her you know furs on and all that and it was nice you know really made an effort and really looking forward to going and seeing a proper theatre show I'd come up from Newcastle on the train for it first class and you know and, and trek myself to drinks and you know it was a nice day nice day off um, so when we got there and I was watching all these guys going up Blaine came to the point where he was doing a trick with a pack of cards and he said I need a pack of cards does anybody in the audience have a pack of cards and before anybody could breathe I bolted on my feet I had a pack of cards in my pocket, held them in the air, took them out, held them in the air, and said, I have a pack of cards. And he said, cool, bring them down here. So I, I walked, just well, walked. I, I was at the stage within about four seconds, I think. I'm pleased I bought the stalls tickets. So we're, we're, I was right at the front of the stage, and he says, come on up here. Are you a magician? I said, yes, I am. He said, cool, do you guys want to see a trick? Do you want to show these people a trick? I said, yes, I do. And I was fully prepared with Omni Deck and the pack of cards and an elastic band on my wrist. And it was a masterclass in preparation, I must admit. Um, I'm always prepared, so that really paid off. And I ended up, well, what followed from there is five or six minutes of doing a little card routine on stage with Blaine. That, and it went really well, and I had the big cameras on it, and I, I, I incorporated this big glass tank that you know minutes earlier he'd been encased within holding his breath incorporated that with Omni Deck so when I pushed the pack of cards onto his big glass box the cards turned into glass and the audience were like whoa and it was really good so I jumped at the chance and loads of people have said to me um, you know I mean it was two and a half thousand people at the Edinburgh Playhouse a card trick and loads of people have said to me since people coming to my show at the Edinburgh Festival even because they saw me there and they've said was it a setup? Were you a plant? Were you a stooge? My answer is, I wasn't paid. <laughs> but my answer to fellow magicians is, no, I wasn't a plant. I just really wanted to get up there with David Blaine. Um, you know, I really wanted to meet him or something. So um, it was great. So I jumped at the chance and it was good. Got to hang out in the dressing room with him afterwards and things and, you know, meet one of my heroes. So it was a it was a good night. Talk to me about then these old Paul Daniels props that you you've come into ownership of. Tell us the whole story um, <laughs> because it kind of feels like it's a year long story for me because I remember about a year ago at Edinburgh you told uh -huh. me that I said this guy's yeah, got this stuff. This guy's yeah, yeah. got this stuff, yeah. and I was like, oh, that's really cool. And yeah. then now you've got a load this. of the stuff. Yeah. Um, so tell us the whole story of, of kind of what's happened. Well, my ultimate favourite magician, David Blaine's great, but my ultimate favourite magician, without a doubt, is Paul. Daniels. He ignited the fire within for me wanting to be a professional magician. 
I've always been a fan of Paul. I've always gone to see his shows as and when I can. Performed with him. Um, we had some some dates lined up. Um, we were going to do a, a tour. Um, the Paul Daniels and Criss Cross Magic Show featuring the lovely Debbie McGee. It was it was in the bag. We, we did a trial night in Newcastle at my then Cabaret Club, the Keyside Cabaret Club. Uh, it went really well. It was basically me doing my act. It, well, it was it was me doing my act. Then it was questions and answers with Paul and Debbie in the audience, conducted by myself. And then Paul and Debbie finished with their act. It was nice. So you had a magic act at the beginning, questions and answers in the middle, and Paul closing the show in the end with all of his trademark chop cup and, and the, the the egg and all that stuff. Um, so we tried it out in Newcastle. It worked well. We were all happy. Booked in more dates. Sadly, he was diagnosed with a brain tumour. The other dates didn't happen, so it's it's um, it's it was extremely sad. Uh, naturally, I was devastated that he passed away. Devastated that we weren't going to do these dates. Uh, that would never ever happen. Devastated that that I'll never get to see Paul Dennis again. It's sad that that uh, usually I go on go on Google and stuff and see when Paul's touring so I can go and watch it or go and see when Ken Dodd's touring so I can go and watch it and you, you can't anymore, they're not there anymore, you'll never see the shows again. That's really sad. But um it was I, I was you know, I was really, really pleased to have got at least that one show in with them and all the pictures from it and videos from it and it's all, you know, uh, real real treasures, um, you know, real treasured memories that I'll that I'll keep forever. Um so Paul's always I've always been a big fan of Paul, he's always been an inspiration. I think he's the best magician that Britain's ever produced and one of the best magicians ever in the world. And the amount of magical methods that he's come up with, he's he came up with like his own methods for all of these standard tricks. So, you know, if you if if you see Paul doing a, a mirror box trick where he produces a girl from it. That's probably the, the what he's doing is probably his version of a mirror box. It's not your normal slanty mirror down the middle and stuff. It'll be his twist on it, his method of it. He took a trick that was already in existence, and he thought of a different way to do it. And then his dad and his brother built it, and then he performed it, and that's why it fooled magicians as well. So, uh, a friend of mine in Wales visited this farm. Uh, he had a job, he had a job on this farm and he spotted a barn full of magical looking things and he knows that I'm a magician and that I love all the old props and old school variety and all that and he took some pictures and he sent them to me and he said are these magic tricks? I said yes they are and I identified them straight away as one-off tricks made specifically for Paul Daniels by his dad and his brother for use on the Paul Daniels magic show I managed to track down who owned the tricks that were in the barn, that were in the farmer's place, so on and so forth. And they were owned by a lorry driver um, who'd, who'd bought them when he was into magic. Um, and they just kind of, he bought them, put them in the barn, and they just sat there for however many years, rotten away. And I said, well, I'll buy them off if you want to sell them. And after a bit of negotiation, I got a sprinter van down, picked them all up, and brought them home and then we had to get another van load back so it was two full van fulls of tricks and there's about a dozen illusions I've got the girl through glass that he performed on the, the magic show with Penelope Keith I've got his human cannon 
Uh, well, I've got the cannon, but I haven't got the box he landed in. Roy Davenport's got the box, and he won't sell it. And I'll not sell the cannon. But if I sell the cannon, I'll sell it to him. And if he sells the box, he said he'd sell it to me. So I'm hoping he might want to sell the box soon. So, Roy, if you're listening, you know you want to sell the box. <laughs> Complete the collection. Um, I've got loads of good things, you know. I've, I've got his big magic square. I've got his backstage with the magician illusion. And I've since tracked down a copy of the Radio Times with that magic trick on the front as well. So that's cool. So I've got all... Uh, I, one, of, one of the real treasures that I got, I think one of the best things I own was from that, that loot. And it was the, the George Grimmon triple trunk escape. George Grimmon was a magician in the early uh, 1900s. He came up with this triple trunk escape and that was like his trademark trick, what he was known for. Basically, it's a trunk within a trunk within a trunk. Each trunk, uh, the, the, you know, the performer goes in the first trunk. It gets padlocked shut from the outside. It gets strapped with big leather straps. That's then lifted up and put in the second box. Again, that box is uh, padlocked from the outside, strapped up. And then those, the box within a box is then put inside the final box, which is then padlocked from the outside and strapped up. Uh, it's covered with a curtain for a few seconds, 30 seconds or something. And then the magician or escapologist has made his big escape and he's out of it. But there's so much history with that trick. So George Grimmond uh, reluctantly sold the prop um, his his like baby, his trademark trick. He sold it to a philanthropist. I forget his name, but he was a, a, a decadent, eccentric millionaire living in Britain in the 1930s, and he, he was a hobbyist magician. So he bought the triple trunk escape for 150 quid in the 1930s. If you think about 150 pound in the 1930s, you could buy a very nice house or a few houses for 150 pound in the 1930s. Um, this is like when cars were, you know, a tenner. So, you know, this this box um, must have been worth a hell of a lot of money to, to this millionaire. So he bought it for his collection. Um, years later, the, 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 this philanthropist, eccentric millionaire, died. Uh, the Davenport family went to the great sale, bought the Grimmond boxes back, gave them back to George Grimmond, which was a really nice touch. George Grimmond got older, he had a stroke, he didn't perform the big tricks anymore. He heard that Paul was on the lookout for new tricks for his new show. Uh, so 1977, he, he sent, uh, Grimmond wrote a letter to Paul Daniels talking about this triple trunk escape with its history, uh, saying how that when, when he owned the trick in, back in the day in the 1930s and 20s and stuff, he'd performed at the Magic Circle, he'd performed the trick at the Magic Circle headquarters and Murray, the great escapologist, and Horace Gold were the two people that tied him up in the box. And Horace Gold publicly, um, publicly stated that it was the best escapology trick, best escapology stunt that uh, he'd ever seen anybody do. So these boxes have been handled by Murray, by George Grimmin, by uh, Horace Golden, by lots of members of the Magic Circle at the time that, that examined the, the boxes thoroughly and they, they couldn't work out how it was done or anything. And eventually the boxes were sold to Paul Daniels by Grimmin and Paul performed them on the Magic Show on the BBC. And after that, I guess the boxes just lay around Paul's shed or warehouse or abandoned garage in his metal containers or wherever until this guy from this lorry driver from Wales bought it and it just sat there in a barn so when I got it it was pretty much probably <laughs> probably hadn't been touched since Paul performed it in 1977 it had just been stored in various 
sheds or containers. So that's a really cool prop that I've got. And I've even got the letter that George Grimman wrote to Paul Daniels with all the history of it on, which is really cool. So what condition were all of these um, boxes and tricks in when, when you found them? The, the, all these props were in various conditions. Since they'd been in a farmer's barn, they were covered in, like, like, like bat shit, and they were covered in, like, like mud and dirt and f- absolute filth. Like, they were just thick of, like, mud, like mud, actual mud and stuff. And it, they, took, they took a lot of cleaning. They took, you know, I'd, I'd be cleaning, just cleaning one of the props, and it would take three days just to clean it and then restoring them and things is another matter some of the props I've restored uh, some of them I will be restoring but I haven't had time uh, but they're in you know they're, they're, they're in a good usable condition most of them now and they're looking good and I'm going to be using uh, one of the tricks at least in, in this tour that I'm doing in October and November so that'll be nice so you can watch out for that one and yeah so some of them were knackered. Some of them weren't as bad. Some of them were rotten. Some of them had woodworm. Some of them were awful and a mess. They've all been properly treated and decontaminated and cleaned and they're all lovely now. Really nice. Um, treasure. What's your, what's your aim with these treasures then? Well, I'll perform a few of them. Uh, maybe just once or twice. Um, one of the props I'm, I've, I've put in this stage tour, so I'll be doing that at least 10 times around all these venues. The other props I'll, I'll maybe display in a venue of mine in the distant or not too distant future, we'll see. But it would be nice to put them all on display so that other magicians and other Paul Daniels fans can see them. But it's not just the Paul Daniels props I've got. I've got, you know, Robert Harbin's dove pan, Tommy Cooper's dove pan. I've got all these autographs and posters, Carter the Great originals. And I've got a, a real big collection of magical history and memorabilia and really nice, fascinating things that I think should be showcased. I don't know. I might do a museum exhibit or something um, in the north of England where Paul was from or just I don't know I've got them all for the time being I'm restoring them all and making them pretty I'm keeping them all as original as possible but if you know there's a bit of rotten carpet in the bottom of a base I'm taking it out and putting a nice one in um, but yeah yeah I'll, I'll eventually I'll get them on display somewhere and people can see them you spoke about um, a few of those items there with a real kind of passion but I wonder is, is there one particular object and, and this doesn't have to be one of Paul's props that you've recently come into um, ownership of, but is there kind of one sort of artefact that you're particularly fond of, one that's that's a favourite? Um, I think, I, to be honest, I think those George Grumman triple trunk escape, I think that's the one, I think it's mint. It's absolutely class. It's like 100 years old, it's had so much history, so many magicians have looked at it and stuff, and you know, if you put that on Penn and Teller Fool Us, it might even fool them. It's really cool. Uh, I think that's probably the one of the coolest. But I've got you know lots of lots of things, lots, lots. But that springs to mind. We can't show the listener, but uh, you showed me just beforehand a little pin from P.T. Selbert. Tell me about that because that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's nice. Um, P.T. Selbert would hand out um, 
would, would I believe that it's it's a very rare piece, but I believe that he gave his on-stage assistants uh, a little necklace with a miniature saw on, same with compliments from P.T. Selbit. And this little saw would would sit on the necklace and he would give it, you know, his personal on-stage assistants, not volunteers from the audience, but his, his personal on-stage assistants. So uh, there's one of those in the collection. That's nice. It's a nice piece. And... Um immediate tours of the northeast aside and restoration of magic products what are some of your your aims for the for the future um aims for the future are to keep on keeping on to learn some new tricks to perfect them to tour with them uh to have a proper tour and magic show i want to be a proper tour and magician around the theaters again ben hart's doing really well pete Furman's doing really well you know darren brown and and, and the illusionists and and all these, you know, there's there's a lot of touring magicians around at the moment. I think it's 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 on the up again, um, and I'd like to be one of those guys. I'd like to be one of those guys that people go and see at the theatre every year, like what I did with Paul Daniels. I'd like to have a good tour and magic show, and I'd quite like to have my own venue. I've just sold a few of my houses, bought a nice big. Well, I'm going to buy a nice big one um, really soon. And I'll see if I can do something with the house, or if I can't do anything in terms of making a venue with the house, then I'll settle into this house, and then in a couple of years' time, maybe five years' time or something, I might buy a venue, magic venue, put all my props in, put them all on display, put on magic shows. Yeah, I think that's what I'd like to do. Do you think there's a, a real first amongst the public at the minute to go out and see live magic? I mean, we, if you kind of think about magic that's been on TV recently, there's not actually a lot. And I kind of wonder if people are almost beginning to kind of think that it's something you have to go and experience live. Well, there was rock stars filling arenas. After rock stars, um, Newman and Bedil went and they were the first comedians to go and sell out Wembley Arena. So they went and... And, and they made comedy I think I think those guys in the early 90s they made you know like, like Newman and, and and Bedil they made comedy the new rock and roll they didn't rock and roll's rock and roll but they made comedy massive arena style comedy and now you think you don't think twice to go and see Michael McIntyre or Jimmy Carr or someone like that at an arena that's where they play Whilst usually they used to play in theatres or comedy clubs, now comedy is an arena attraction. Um, Dynamo did a tour of the arenas, and as far as I know, he did well. I didn't go and see it. Um, But I think Magic is going to be the next arena attraction. So you've gone rock and roll bands, filling arenas, to comedians filling arenas, I think magicians are next. Magicians will fill arenas. And I think people, you know, like Bernhardt and stuff, uh, there's no reason why in five or ten years' time no one be playing arenas. I think I'm quite happy with theatres. That'll do me. I never want to play an arena. I'm not bothered. But I just want to do theatres. That's nice. But I think more and more magicians will be playing arenas soon. That's the future. And the real thirst of it, I mean, if you look at things like Britain's Got Talent, magicians are winning or getting close to winning that now and things. And I mean, I know half of it's whatever, but I just think magic is really, really in, in vogue. It's really trendy. People like it. 
magicians are winning talent shows, magicians are playing arenas, and magicians are, are on the up. You mentioned talent shows. Is that something you've ever been tempted to? I'm sure you've had the offers. I was on Britain's Got Talent. I think it was the second ever season of it. So it was years ago. It was like 2007 or something. Uh, I went on that doing the contortion act. But it was all agreed. It was all signed. It was, you know, my act will be portrayed in a positive light. It will be portrayed in a positive light. I'll get at least this amount of air time. I'll not have to go through all of the process of going to the pre-auditions. I would go straight to see the judges. And it was all agreed. I don't know what they do now. I don't know if it's still a fix, but I don't know that it's not a fix. So, yeah. I, I'm not bothered about the talent shows. Been there, I've done that. It works out well for people. I don't want to be famous. I just like people to come and see my show. If it means I've got to be famous to sell out all these theatres around the country, then I guess I've got to be a little bit famous or a little bit well-known, which is fine. But I don't really want to be famous. I couldn't be bothered. I'm quite happy doing what I do. I make enough money. I have fun. I travel the world. I've got a good lifestyle. I like it like that. I like it the way it is. But I would like to sell tickets to my theatre shows. We've got about two minutes, I think, until we need to unleash you to go and get ready for your gig. But uh, I've got two final questions for you. We're mm-hmm. sat to lift the lid a little bit in one of my favourite places to perform mm-hmm. in the world, the Liquid Rooms. Mm-hmm. First question is, what's your kind of number one venue to play? And second, finally, if you were to kind of advise one magic book to, uh, to, to someone to kind of help with their career, what would you pick? My ideal venue is a theatre. Uh, I don't have a particular one in mind, but the Tyne Theatre and Opera House in Newcastle is lovely. It seats 1,100, but you fill up the stalls first, that's 500, and then you release tickets for the others. So even if you get 300 people in this 1,100-seater theatre, it still feels really busy. Uh, in the stalls and you know as long as you don't look up you're fine <laughs> so I really like theatres I love little cabaret clubs you know like the voodoo rooms in Edinburgh where I played last night the ballroom or the speakeasy in the voodoo rooms such a lovely venue really really like that that place that's great um, so I really like cabaret clubs and theatres that's that's my thing in terms of a magic book well you put me on the spot there um, I've got a I've got a collection of over I would say Probably, probably over a thousand magic books. Um, which one springs to mind? Um, the Geordie Book of Magic by Chris Cross the Magician. Available at www.chris-cross.co.uk. Price £12. Free post. But I've got you a free copy in my bag. A very crisscross answer. Perfect way to end it. Cheers for joining us on Talking Tricks. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to Talking Tricks with Cade and Abel. Please rate, review and subscribe to the podcast.